listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast, recorded here in Seoul on Monday, June 3rd, 2019. And today, I am joined in the studio by Dr. Lee Sung-hyun to talk about the role of China in, North, uh, in Korean and Northeast Asian regional security issues. It's a big topic. But first, an advertisement for NK News and NK Pro. These two subscription services are truly the most comprehensive and detailed platforms related to North Korea information gathering. Please consider buying a one-year subscription. You can save $50 off your first year at NK News by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. Just go to nknews.org and have a look. And if you'd like a chance to win a free subscription for one year, please leave a review of this podcast at iTunes or wherever else you downloaded the podcast. So my guest today... Dr. Lee Song-hyun is the director of the Center for Chinese Studies at the Sejong Institute in Seoul. He's a graduate of Grinnell College, or Grinnell, how do I say that? Grinnell. Grinnell College, Harvard University, and Tsinghua University. He has given lectures at universities and conferences worldwide and is the author of numerous books, policy briefs, and articles on the national security and foreign policy of China, North Korea, and East Asia. That's a lot of stuff there. Welcome, Dr. Lee. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Jacko. And uh, can I also leave a review so I can get a one-year free subscription? You are welcome, but they are chosen at random, so I can't guarantee that you'll get the uh, free subscription. But yeah, by all means, do leave a review and uh, make sure to share it with your uh, students, colleagues, friends, enemies. Now, uh, you're a, a Korean who has studied in both the United States and in China. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Graham Allison's concept of the Thucydides uh, this is uh, basically for our listeners who may not have heard of it. The Thucydides trap, hard to pronounce, especially when you're drunk, which I'm not, but still hard to pronounce, <laughs> even hard to pronounce when you're sober. Uh, it's this theory that a, uh, an existing world power uh, and a rising world power uh, will probably uh, come into conflict at some point in time. And so my question to you is, are China and the U.S. destined for conflict at some point in the near future? What's your opinion on that? Well, this is an interesting and easy question to ask and difficult and uh, complex answer to provide. Since I lived in China for 11 years, uh, I could uh, provide some Chinese perspective. China overtook Japan in 2010, became the number two economy. Today is 2019, so it's only the nine years after China became the number two economy. Mm. Now China's uh, the size of economy is about three times that of Japan. So, uh, you know, China is rising really, really rapidly. And uh, when you become number two, you know, you want to become number one as well at some point. And uh, China's sees this uh, period as a uh, that means the strategic opportunity period mm-hmm. uh, for uh, China's rise. Uh, when China rise means that China rise over who? You know, China's rise over Japan and China's over rise over uh, number one country, that is the United States. Yeah. So Xi Jinping put that uh, into the, his uh, vision statement in 2017. 19th Party Congress to realize the uh, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation by the year 2049. Mm. That is the year when China surpasses United States in terms of military, in terms of economy, in terms of politics and uh, influence in the world as well. Number two, I think uh, when it comes to this China's desire 
uh, to suppress that of uh, United States is that we have a very unusual, uh, interesting uh, figure, a Chinese leader called Xi Jinping, as yep. you know. Many people ask me who is Xi Jinping, and I, I have my way of saying, uh, putting it this way. Uh, that is, the Xi Jinping has this uh, crisis, uh, uh, complex crisis awareness that he believes he has a historic mandate of, uh, uh, to create a great Chinese nation, mm. uh, and he feels the burden, historic burden on his shoulders. Mm. So he feels that this is his historic mandate and the responsibility. So he is determined, and that's why we are seeing that when you look at the U.S.-China trade war, it's uh, you know the war will end when China you know back down, and uh, China is not backing down uh, against the wide expectation because now. Uh, aforementioned uh, two reasons that I mentioned. And I think Xi Jinping is getting wide support from the average Chinese people despite mm-hmm. the trade war. Uh, you know, intellectuals criticize uh, him, but yeah. I think we should be m- uh, more closely look at Chinese, uh, this collective consciousness. And unlike Western media reports, I think so far so good. Xi Jinping is getting wide uh, support and you know, the danger is from Xi Jinping's perspective is that if he kneels down and say uncle to Trump and, you know, say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I challenged you. Now I take my word back. I'll be number two forever and I'll serve you as the master of the universe. The moment Xi Jinping utters that word, I think he will be stunned. Mm. Uh, you know, this is because... You know, people have a great expectation uh, uh, to uh, realize the great Chinese nation. And that's why he, uh, you know, canceled the term limit. So you know, the reason that people in Chinese uh, Communist Party gave him a chance to rule for many, many decades to come is, is because they're giving a, giving a chance to realize this history mission of the so-called China dream, Zhongguo Meng. So we'll see. This is going to be a, a not short-term uh, process, the China-U.S. conflict, but this is going to be a long, mid- and long-term conflict. Uh, we international uh, relations scholars call it a uh, power transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is uh, uh, in a period where we are seeing a, a, a China attempts a power transition, and uh, while the sitting power United States is trying to check China's rights. So it, this is very uh, going to be a tumultuous period. That's, uh, I, I would certainly ag- agree with that uh, assessment. Uh, but coming back to the idea of the uh, of the Thucydides trap, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Graham Allison argues that while the uh, the power transition that you talk about is is certainly something that we see time and time again. Mm-hmm. Uh, on occasions, mm-hmm. there are um, miscalculations, uh, mistakes, or missteps made. Sometimes in third places. So, for example, going back to World War One, mm-hmm. uh, things didn't begin mm-hmm. in uh, in Germany mm-hmm. uh, or in Russia mm-hmm. or in Great Britain. They began in a in a third place, namely uh, Bosnia Herzegovina, mm-hmm. uh, where the Archduke uh, Franz Joseph was assassinated. And I, I, I wonder, could a a miscalculation or uh, a mistake in North Korea perhaps be the fuse that ignites a conflict between the U.S. and China, as it did in late 1950. Do you see any any risk of that? Jaku, you are a man of great wisdom and historical insight. I think you raise a very interesting question. Uh, indeed, historically speaking, if you look at uh, the past, normally the two powers, uh, two hegemonic powers, they don't 
uh, get into war immediately. Normally, there is a proxy war. That is that there are uh, right. smaller countries who one is siding with China, the other is siding with the United States, and that they get into a conflict. And then uh, the two superpowers behind the smaller powers, they jump in the game as well. Mm. And this is the pattern that uh, because when the two whales directly fight each other, yep. they'll see blood, blood each other, and it's a tremendous cost. So normally they let the junior guys fight first. Mm-hmm. So that's why we worry about the regional conflict, such as South China Sea, yep. uh, Senkaku Island, also the Taiwan Strait, and also, as you mentioned, the, the Korean Peninsula surrounding the North Korean issue. Mm-hmm. Having said that, the North Korean issue in terms of packing order of risk is going to be not the top, uh, the top, um, the conflict possibility between U.S. and China is going to be probably uh, Taiwan mm. or South China Sea. The U.S. and China created this uh, false image of trust be- uh, between the two each other. That is that even though they are very uh, two different countries in terms of ideology, culture, language, and the ways of political system, but they try to believe that they have something in common to work with, to cooperate with. So they created this uh, image that is larger than the life that is North Korea. And they believe that, oh, finally we found something uh, to agree with. So now that we could work together. Uh, this is what we saw at 2013 Sunny Land Summit between Obama and Xi Jinping because it, the bilateral summit uh, issues, they, ha- they have very little to agree to each other. So if you look at the press statement, they are uh, uh, hype up uh, what they have achieved when it comes to their agreement on uh, need mutual need for acknowledgement mm-hmm. of cooperation with each other. What that means is that North Korean issue, in a way, has been uh, functioning as a stabilizer mm. uh, between U.S.-China relations because they both need denuclearization of North Korea. So they need to meet each other between Washington and Beijing. They need to discuss, and it gives them a sense of appearance that they have something in common. While they have a lot of things of differences between each other. Even at this stage when they, uh, they are fighting each other uh, with rhetorics and uh, actions of trade revenges against each other, but uh, China at this very moment at least has not moved their cheese uh, when it comes to North Korea. But that means that China is still apparently sticking with the UN-mandated sanctions. Mm. It is apparently cooperating with the United States, even during the Shangri-La dialogue, which just ended, yep. uh, the two, uh, the China gave the lip service that uh, uh, you know the two, the trade issue and the North Korean issues are separate, mm-hmm. and uh, we will continue to uh, follow and uh, uh, you know abide by the international regimes uh, sanctions against North Korea. On the other hand, so by the same token of logic, when we begin to see China really disagrees and moves away from Team America when it comes to sanctions against North Korea, then I think we are seeing a very, very serious conflict and disagreement between the two superpowers. You mean if it does so publicly or or openly? Yes. Okay. Uh, Let's talk about THAAD, the uh, Terminal High Altitude Aerial Defense. Why was China so upset 
by the stationing of THAAD anti-missile batteries in South Korea by the United States. China was and is upset about that because it could, because it's a big power. It's a bigger power. It has a power over South Korea. And we are still living in a a jungle of international relations when the big power could do more room for maneuvering. Mm -hmm. And when they see smaller powers do something and they don't like, they choose to be upset about it. And this is typical about the things that even if you are living in the 21st century, you know, this kind of element of jungle uh, diplomatics are still happening. Okay, but why are they so threatened by that? Why don't they like it? That is a anti-advanced anti-missile defense system. Yeah. Uh, both Washington and Seoul say it is to targeting the you know North Korean uh, missiles that might be endangering uh, South Korea. Mm. Uh, but then it's not about the missiles, uh, but then that comes with a very powerful radar, which could uh, zip and uh, uh, have a surveillance uh, capability uh, far beyond the Korean Peninsula, on uh, even to the uh, eastern coastal areas of China, such as Shandong, mm-hmm. where China has a People's Liberation Army, Blue Navy, yeah. and also Dalian, and even Beijing and Shanghai. And there are strategic assets that China has has deployed there. Even uh, China's ICBMs are uh, behind the mountain Changbai or mountain Baekdu in mm. from Korean words, and this. Uh, if in case China is attacked from the United States, then China wants to also revenge the United States, uh, what you call a second uh, strike ability. And uh, when, when the Chinese missiles to revenge the United States uh, flies off from the ground, that could theoretically uh, have an early warning system uh, seven seconds uh, faster than the uh, continental United States could see. So it could neutralize the Chinese uh, nuclear capability. Yep. So China right. is worried about this kind of uh, vulnerability, but instead of retaliating against the United States, China chose to retaliate against South Korea. I understand that there is an exactly symbol, sorry, there is an identical radar system already in place in Japan mm-hmm. that can reach the same parts of China that the SAD radar in South Korea can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet China has not retaliated against Japan in the same way as it has against South Korea. It's quite a, a different response there. So you are raising here very interesting questions that you should also uh, bring this uh, you know, discovery to South Korea's foreign ministry and look. You should think about why you are retaliated and think about your strategy. Maybe there is something wrong about your strategy in terms of responding to uh, China's you know, actions about the debt. Having said that, uh, in a way, South Korea was unfortunate because uh, at the time, uh, China was uh, as a rising, uh, rising superpower. It has formulating a neighborhood diplomacy strategy uh, against the backdrop of a rising uh, conflict and rivalry with the United States. So China categorized the neighboring countries into three groups. One is a staunch U.S. ally. That is like Japan. And uh, even if China does whatever, this country is very likely to remain as a staunch ally of the United States. So China's uh, dealings with them is just to let them be who they are. Just treat them cold shoulders. But being practical when it suits their own national interests, China is willing to do business with them, just like 
what Xi Jinping is warming up with uh, Shinzo Abe these days. Uh, second group is uh, pro-China countries, such as uh, the Philippines. These countries are very eager to receive the economic uh, aid from China. And uh, they're very uh, you know, eager to receive the China's so-called uh, Belt and Road Economic uh, Infrastructure Project. So China will shower them even more presents so that these countries will remain loyal to China and listen to China and follow China. And the third group of countries that China uh, categorized is a country like wishy-washy countries, like uh, hesitant countries like South Korea. It, it, South China sees these countries as uh, opportunistic countries. They try to take advantage of uh, both sides. For example, South Korea's slogan used to be, uh, roughly speaking, when it comes to you know, security, it relies on the United States. When it comes to economy, it relies on China. So, uh, you know, actually, there are many other countries uh, in China's neighborhood which take a similar uh, strategy, and it's very common to be self-interested. But then China, uh, as you said, retaliated very uh, severely against South Korea mm. because China knows that uh, it's not just South Korea, but other countries. There is a global audience who is watching how China would respond to South Korea's behavior that goes against uh, China's wishes. Uh, in China, in Chinese, they call it uh, killing a chicken to scare the monkey. Mm. So the, you know, China said uh, uh, you know, South Korea have happened to be a very unfortunate case in uh, example that uh, scare other countries so that you, know, you will see what happens when you didn't obey. Uh, there are roles that you know, Washington could play. That is that when South Korea was punched in the head and bleeding the noise, nose, uh, and the South Korea's company, La Lotte, was like uh, ransacked uh, in China mm-hmm. and uh, losing his, uh, you know, all his financial uh, investments. And uh, when, uh, you know, when the China was retaliating against South Korea, what the United States as an ally did, uh, practically it did nothing. Just like it did nothing during the Senkaku issue dispute between China and Japan in 2010 and 2012, and you know, United States did not nothing. And uh, you know, just like it's also the same pattern of behavior during the this Huawei incident when the founder of Huawei's daughter Mwanjo was arrested in Canada at the request of the U.S. government. So Canada did a favor to the United States, but then China retaliated not against. United States, but retaliated against Canada. Mm. And Canada, three Canadian citizens were uh, detained in China. But the, what did the United States did? It did nothing. So there are uh, uh, three countries that are allies and friends uh, of the United States that have become a victim to China's uh, bullying behavior in recent years. Mm. And you know, the United States has done nothing to protect them. Uh, I think... Uh, this is already the third case, uh, including the Huawei case, the Canadian case, South Korean case, Japanese case. So I think it is giving a very wrong signal to the global audience about whether we could trust United States uh, or whether we should think about the plan B options. Are you uh, personally familiar with either of the two Canadian Michaels currently charged with uh, threatening Chinese state security and stealing state secrets or acting as agents of foreign powers or something similar? You know, China has uh, this pattern of uh, standard answers. 
that you know when they arrest some people foreigners you know they have a standard answer these people either are national security threat mm. to china or violated china's domestic law you know when you look at chinese law very interestingly they did not specify what are the actions and details of action what are the specific behaviors that constitute a national security for example mm. uh, for example if, even in, in if you live in china you discover that even the college entrance exam those are part of the national security uh, so if you steal or if you cheat the oh. college entrance exam then you are violating the national security so china very uh, broadly define it so that they can use it for its own convenience so uh, you know, it's uh, very difficult if you try to argue with the Chinese uh, that you know, oh, they, these people did not violate the Chinese national security law when it's China that defines what the national security law is mm. about. You, uh, you recently wrote in a column for the Korea Times, uh, being opportunistic is, a hu- is human nature. It often benefits to behave opportunistically in the realpolitik of international relations. D- does this explain uh, North Korea-China relations? Sort of opportunism. That's an interesting way of uh, putting, characterizing the relationship. Uh, they are definitely not friends, but then they definitely not willing to file a divorce suit, even though they live together and sleep in the same bedroom. So it's a convenience that just you know geopolitical convenience, right. strategic convenience. There are about one thousand uh, reasons why China and North Korea. Uh, they stick together uh, because, for example, you know there are many regions, as you know, that they have a, what they perceived as a, a common adversary. That is the United States. Also, you know, China uses you know North Korea as a barking dog against United States when China wanted to express and you know, criticize United States. But then there are some, you know, why China is reluctant to have a biting sanctions against North Korea and because China is afraid about the regime collapse and, uh, you know, then, you know, there are all reasons that you are already familiar. But mm. let me just put it on one more reason. That is that if you look at the North Korea, Northeast Asia, China and North Korea are the two remaining socialist states. Many people don't realize this, but China is very afraid, psychologically speaking, very afraid that what if North Korea ditches uh, China and become part of the team United States? Mm. In that case, China will remain as the only socialist country in Northeast alone. And you think that's nothing or you haven't thought about it, but you know, if you talk with the Chinese uh, analyst and uh, uh, strategist, you know this gives a a, a very uh, psychological fear because if you look at uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the boundary or the the block of freedom in the world is expanding, while the block of socialist, including the collapse of the Soviet Union, is diminishing. So China is a big country or one of the big brothers in socialist uh, block. They are worried about this, uh, you know, global chess game. Uh, there is one socialist block, and the other is uh, the freedom block, so-called. So you want, you know, people normally don't talk about this, but this is also psychological uh, aspect of why China is so willing to stick to North Korea, even though they are not really uh, lovers to each other. Back in the time of the Korean War, uh, there was this phrase that uh, China and North Korea are like lips and teeth. Uh, you, you can't get any closer. Do they still use that uh, that old-fashioned phrase when they talk about each other these days? You don't normally hear that 
during the uh, you know scholarly exchanges mm. because you know Chinese scholars even though they are communist party members but they are also well educated and they also have a common at least a bit of common sense and they know that it's uh, beneath their dignity to <laughs> say that you know oh we are lips and teeth you know it's it's, a, it's they know that it's a kind of a undermines their own dignity but when you still look at the uh, official uh, uh, you know Xinhua News Agency uh, People's Daily or China's other you know you know state owned commentaries. You know, you will st- uh, still see you know phrases, not necessarily like you know you know blood tied, yeah. right? But then blood coagulated relation. That's kind of literal expression. Oh, uh, coagulated relation. That that means the blood ties, or you know the one and only relationship mm. in the world, and uh, you know generation to generation uh, uh, relationship that the historical challenges that many people doubted that we will divorce but we still are here and that we you also see expressions such as uh, one command center China and North Korea are dealing with a nuclear issue mm. in one command center one Hanae uh, Chamobu this is a very interesting expression because this exactly goes back to what you just asked during the Cold War era in 1950. Korean War, the Chinese side, uh, you, know, uh, you know, suggested so the China and North Korea they formed a one single command center, Hanai mm. Chamubu, uh, and this very expression just came out uh, during the Xi Jinping uh, Kim Jong Un summit. So when I saw that, I thought this is very interesting. This is vocabulary from the Korean War, right? And the Xi Jinping and Kim Jong Un are using it. So I think this is significant. Let's talk a bit more about uh, Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un. As far as you can tell, do they have a good personal rapport? For socialist countries, when the two heads of states, they meet each other, the traditional way of greetings are to hug each other for three times, left side, right side, and left side. So uh, Kim Jong-un's father, yeah. uh, Kim Jong-il, when he met uh, Hu Jintao in Changchun, they hugged each other. Just like the following the uh, decorum uh, etiquette, uh, the you know, diplomatic uh, protocols of the socialist countries. But this time, if you look very closely look at Xi Jinping and Kim Jong Un, they did not hug each other three times. Mm. So they did not follow uh, their predecessors' uh, protocols of greeting each other. And this is a very subtle but interesting uh, differences because. You know, when we talk about lips and teeth uh, during the Cold War era, but it, it's already 70 years uh, during the period of Mao Zedong and uh, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-un's uh, grandfather. Uh, you know, the closeness of, between two guys are amazing uh, on the uh, superficial way. Even uh, Kim Il-sung, without pre-notice to China, he already took a train and entered the Chinese side huh. first. And then he notified uh, hello, Mr. Mao, I'm here in China. Can I see you in Beijing? I'm in train on my way to see you. And Chinese said, oh, please come. So that's the level of closeness and informal bonding between the grandpa, uh, grandpa uh, uh, period. So there are generational changes in both China and North Korea. And if the trend continues, I think the so-called emotional bonding, uh, the lips and teeth, uh, those fairy tale uh, stories of uh, love affair uh, between China and North Korea, I think they will diminish uh, year by year. Now, uh, apart from the uh, the question of personal rapport and relationship, what do you believe those four meetings between Xi and Kim actually achieved for both of them? Oh, they achieved a lot. You know, Kim Jong-un became the leader in late 2011 after the sudden death of his father. Yep. Uh, Xi Jinping became the leader 
in uh, uh, November 2012. So there's a, like a one-year difference when they both became the top leader in China and North Korea. But until last year, uh, they haven't, they did not meet each other even on a single occasion. So it's like a six or seven-year uh, hiatus of mm. summit when the two leaders of uh, North Korea and China they you know minted and but then they did not interact each other. So it's a very low period in North Korea-China uh, relations. But then suddenly last year, uh, including uh, this year, January, they uh, technically speaking recovered uh, the bilateral ties to a significant degree. Uh, so this is uh, one thing. And second thing is that I think they formed a strategic uh, 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 posture, a joint posture to deal with the nuclear issue. Just like what I mentioned, that one Chamubu, one uh, strategic uh, combined command office yeah. sitting together. And that's what they agreed to each other. And also, Xi Jinping is supposedly giving advice be- uh, to Kim Jong-un how to deal with the uh, uh, Trump. Mm. Because Xi Jinping had uh, lots of experience, uh, one even including one-to-one dealings with the Trump, including in Malalago. So Xi Jinping supposedly gave uh, gave a lot of advice to uh, uh, you know Kim Jong Un how to deal with Trump, a very unpredictable guy. But at the same time, that's why if we remember, uh, Trump at least three times openly complained that uh, you know that probably Xi Jinping was behind Kim Jong Un and controlling uh, Kim Jong Un after seeing a uh, Kim Jong Un's defiant attitude during the a few times of uh, negotiations. So. China want, wanted to project the image that uh, behind North Korea, uh, you know, China is there as a guardian and protector. And uh, if we look at uh, from North Korea side, uh, you know, it's helpful to have someone who is bigger and powerful behind you when you're dealing with the United States, which is the number one co- powerful country in the world. So Kim Jong-un is using China and China is using uh, uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, Xi Jinping is using Kim Jong-un to uh, keep the impression that mm. you know China has the largest influence over North Korea. So if you want to solve the North Korean issue, then, then you need to give some favor to China as well. We are the country who holds influence on North Korea. So, mm. so you cannot solve the North Korean issue alone. You need China's cooperation. Are there any changes in North Korea that China would like to see? Oh, yeah. China wants to see North Korea stable. But China does not uh, necessarily hope that, you know, it's Kim Jong-un who is calling the shots. I, I think China doesn't mind whoever calls the shots in North Korea. But the condition is that whoever calls the shots in North Korea, but this guy should have uh, absolute control of uh, North Korea's domestic uh, politics so that he could uh, keep the politics under control. China prefers a guy like that to be uh, in charge of North Korea, so China could cooperate with this guy. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, if you remember, there was a, a, you know, the episode of uh, Kim Jong Un's uh, brother, older brother Kim Jong Nam, yes. got assassinated when we heard about rumors that Kim Jong Nam, you know, China is uh, probably cultivating Kim Jong Nam to replace uh, Kim Jong Un. Whether that is true or not, but then China, at least China's preference is that it doesn't care. Uh, whoever calls the shots in North Korea, but he, sh- as long as he puts the things under control, who could make deals with China, who mm. have a favorable politics, favorable relationship, friendly relationship with China, and who is able, uh, willing to 
uh, maintain a friendlier and socialist traditions with China, have a joint posture against the United States. As long as uh, you know, you know, China sees a guy like that, China will bless him, and China is willing to shower him with economic uh, uh, packages aids. Uh, so China is the, the obviously the number one source of foreign investment and trade with North Korea. Uh, and you mentioned earlier in the interview that China is at least publicly on board with the United States in terms of multilateral sanctions, United Nations sanctions on North Korea. Do you believe that China is actually enforcing sanctions? I think uh, we should be fair when it comes to sanctions. Uh, and that is 2017. China enforced sanctions, uh, enforced sanctions that are meaningful from my perspective. And there is a reason why China enforced. That's why, you know, the the U.S. government and South Korea government, even the Chinese government, uh, uh, Chinese government enforcing, uh, you know, we felt that China was uh, uh, faithfully, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, ambiguous words how we mm. should define faithful, but then at least faithfully uh, implementing uh, for some certain period of time, implementing the uh, sanctions against North Korea. Why? Because when uh, you know Trump became the president, if you remember, he publicly said that if China cooperates with the United States on North Korean issue, mm-hmm. then Trump is willing to be softened on the trade issue with China. So China took it as a sign of compromise, as a sign of deal. So that's why China... Uh, showed a very unusual gesture of uh, enforcing uh, sanctions that is uh, meaningful in a sense that because we didn't see that kind of meaningful in terms of the depth and degree, but whether it was enough to choke and suffocate Kim Jong-un's regime, no, not quite, but then it was much more uh, severe uh, choking than before. So that's why we would put it as a meaningful sanctions. But then uh, you know, later we saw China begin to show that, you know, after China was, when China was cooperating uh, on North Korean issue, but then uh, Trump is not uh, softening its posture when it comes to the trade issue. So China later kind of relaxed a little bit. And now, you know, after uh, a few months later now, even in Singapore, uh, you know, Shangri-La summit when the U.S. and China, the defense chips, they met together. Uh, you know, the Chinese side, uh, you know, demanding that we should relax the sanctions commensurate with uh, North Korea's uh, uh, showing signs of declaration. So I think that is, uh, now we are seeing uh, increasing differences, uh, uh, distances between China and North Korea, China and the United States when it comes to sanctions. What's, what's China's feeling about inter-Korean relations, relations between North and South Korea? They are happy to see the tensions being reduced on the Korean Peninsula, not because China is a peace lover. Of course, everyone claims to be a peace lover. Of course, I'm also a peace lover, just like Jack, you're also. We all love peace in the world. But China loves peace on the Korean Peninsula because China sees the Korean Peninsula as their backyard. And when backyard is noisy, then your uh, living room gets noisy as well. Uh, So China has a historical sense of... uh, preferring its backyard be quiet and stable. So, you know, during the last one or uh, one and all, you know, half years period, we saw dramatic shift from the fire and fury to this peace momentum, the Singapore summit and Hanoi summit. So 
this is a peace momentum that China and no war on the Korean Peninsula. So China likes it. And uh, China also likes to see the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, North Korea. And uh, the whole thing, the dialogue and negotiation between Trump and Kim Jong-un is to denuclearize North Korea. So that also fits into China's national interest. So are good relations between the two Koreas and also good relations between North Korea and the U.S., are they in China's uh, strategic interests or national interests? The two Korea's good relations, as long as it serves to China's perceived, uh, China's needs of uh, not uh, creating tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Yeah. They don't want two Koreas to go to war each other. Right. So it serves China's interest. The dialogue of North Korea and the United States it also, to a certain degree, serves China's interest because it's building peace. Uh, and the stability on the Korean Peninsula. But I think that's the only way it could go, particularly when it comes to uh, the interest and uh, between China and the United States converge with each other. Uh, besides denuclearization, I think when North Korea gives up on nuclear weapons, I think that's the moment that you know the interest of China and uh, United States will diverge because United States uh, and China will demand the withdrawal of U.S. troops because U.S. Uh, claims that we put the troops on the Korean Peninsula to, uh, to defend against uh, uh, North Korean aggression. But when there is a peace treaty and the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, then there is no North Korean threat. And China will naturally and logically will ask, oh, there is a peace on the Korean Peninsula and there is a uh, peace treaty. And why, United States, you still wish to have uh, troops on the Korean Peninsula? Mm. Get out. I think China will find it very logical to demand. And when the, the troops withdraw from the Korean Peninsula, then China will ask another question. Oh, there is a, a piece of the Korean Peninsula. But why you still uh, have a lot of manpower troops in Japan, mm. in China's uh, vicinity? You, know, it, you claim that this is against the North Korean threat, but there is no North Korean threat. So the troops on the, in Japan should get out from the region as well, because this is... Uh, our pond uh, that this is China's sphere of influence. So I think both China and the United States, they are big guys. They know they play big games and they know each other what they will demand each other in the you know, five years, 10 years to come after the peace treaty. That's why there is some uh, uh, argument from the Chinese side that actually the U.S. does not want to solve the North Korean nuclear issue Rather, the U.S. wants to see a certain degree of tension on the Korean Peninsula because it justifies the presence of U.S. troops. You know, this is Chinese claim, and I think the U.S. needs to respond to this claim. I haven't seen any effective response so far. Uh, yesterday at the, uh, the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, the Chinese Defense Minister General Wei Fenghe uh, said China is committed to denuclearization, peace and stability of the Korean Peninsula and to a negotiated solution through dialogue and consultation. Uh, and he also noted that China has played an irreplaceable and constructive role toward those goals. Would you say that's a fair assessment of, uh, of China's role in the, uh, uh, in the construction of Northeast Asian peace? You know, the, the, the three things that uh, he said, the peace and stability and the dialogue and denuclearization, these mm. are the things that what I mentioned just now. The fourth, that China played a constructive role. Yeah. And this is a, kind of a new uh, vocabulary mm-hmm. uh, China has put uh, when China 
felt that it was sidelined from the Korean Peninsula drama from one and a half years ago when the initiative on the Korean Peninsula was driven not by China, but by Moon Jae-in and Trump. You know, in the past, the, the mantra when it comes to North Korean nuclear issue is that as all the roads lead to Rome, the North Korean nuclear issue has to be solved by Beijing. And as long as Beijing cooperates and you know, you know, pressures North Korea, then North Korean nuclear issue will be solved. So China is the one who should solve North Korean issue. And we should always, when there is North Korean provocations, we always, you know, our heads normally you know, automatically turn to China. Oh, where is China when there is a North Korean provocation? So it gave tremendous leverage when international politics to China. Mm. But Trump was the first U.S. president for the last 26 years of drama in North Korea that I don't need China anymore. I could directly reach out to Kim Jong-un. So he sat down and just Kim Jong-un and Trump. That kind of scared China mm. because it signals that the U.S. for the first time doesn't need China anymore. I could directly reach uh, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, and can solve the nuclear issue. So China felt that kind of uh, out of place. It's, uh, uh, you know, supposed leverage and influence was in question. And so it was kind of relief to see that the, you know, the, the Hanoi summit collapsed from the Chinese perspective in a strange or uh, in, in a certain sense. So that I think China wants to maintain the narrative that China is a irreplaceable country when it comes to North Korean uh, narrative in the world. And the U.S. cannot solve the, you know, the North Korean issue alone. U.S. needs China and China will use it as a leverage when it comes to international political dealings uh, with in some other aspects and other issues uh, and, and when the U.S. and China's uh, conflict and cooperation, this dual nature collide mm. each other. This is, China could use this as a bargaining chip, symbolically or in literal sense. Uh, what would be the smartest thing that President Moon Jae-in could do in relation to South Korea's relationship to China at this time? I think South Korea is in a spot, a very difficult spot, yeah. because uh, it, it is being pressured by two big whales uh, in uh, China and the United States. Even though they, uh, some people claim that uh, you know we, we are not shrimp, South Korea is not a shrimp stuck between, pinched between the two ways, the China and the United States anymore. South Korea grew up as a dolphin, but if you, dolphin, if you look at the killer whale, you know, you know, you know dolphin is very, pretty small when it comes to killer whale that, that are the United States and the China. So, you know, I think, you know, you know South Korea will have a very difficult time because it is very unprepared for the U.S. and China conflict and trade war because for the last two years, the Moon Jae-in administration has been so solely and singularly focused on the North Korean issue. But let me put it this way. Uh, if South Korea has been suffering or, or have been dealing with the North Korean issue and find it very uh, burdensome, and uh, in the coming years, the U.S.-China conflict will incur the same amount of burden or even bigger uh, diplomatic burden, uh, pressure, restraint on South Korea's diplomacy, because even including North Korean issue, because both the United States and China look at North Korean issue as a part of their own bilateral issue, their own rivalry, their own geopolitical landscape and sphere of influence rivalry, on the Korean Peninsula and in Northeast Asia. So that is a U.S.-China relationship is upper level over North Korean issue, while 
for South Korea, North Korean issue is everything. But for China and the United States, this is not everything. They could make a deal. They could, uh, you know, in, in, in a sideline, you know, South Korea or even North Korea when the U.S. and uh, Beijing and Washington could find the deal. So I think uh, South Korea tried to find a way what the U.S. is thinking and what the China is thinking, what China will do when it comes to Huawei, for example, how if South Korea chooses Huawei or, or rejects Huawei and China, China revenge, retaliate against. But let me put it this way. I think uh, before South Korea tries to analyze the strategies and dealings, uh, tactics, of what China will do, what the U.S. will do, and how South Korea will be vulnerable between the two. South Korea should first think about its own identity. Who are you, South Korea? And South Korea should think about the principles as a nation, as a sovereign state. What are the things that you could compromise? Mm. Trade, you could compromise. Uh, what are the things that you cannot compromise? Your national fundamental value. You are a country that subscribes to press freedom, democracy, rule of law, freedom, human rights. If these are the you know, inherent values that South Korea and South Korean people choose to follow and secure and adhere to, then South Korea should very in, in, in a clear voice to tell other countries, including China, that these are the values that I need to keep. And if I don't keep, then my people, South Korean people, will overthrow or to vote for other candidates. Or South Korea will lose its own identity. If, and South Korea belongs to the democracy camp. It means that you know, for the time being, South Korea belongs to U.S. You know, friends of the United States, uh, allies. I think China is a good friend of China, South Korea, but ally is a much bigger, much important level of relationship than just a friend. So I think South Korea should deal with different countries based on its already defined categories of countries. U.S. is an ally and South Korea should respect that relationship to the high level and the depth that the alliance carries. China is a good friend, but then friends, you have many, many other friends. So, you know, when it comes to this kind of thing, South Korea should think about these issues before implementing any strategy. All right, let me uh, jump in there. You mentioned about a minute ago uh, fundamental values such as uh, freedom of the press and, uh, uh, and also you know, um, human, human rights, rights and liberal democracy. Yeah. So that brings it to my last question. You, um, uh, you might be aware that some uh, critics of the current uh, Moon Jae-in administration are saying that... Uh, uh, because of the efforts to improve relations with North Korea, that there has been a sort of a squashing down of dissent, uh, that there has been some silencing of critical voices or conservative voices against the uh, the Moon Jae-in administration. Now you're at the uh, the Sejong Institute, uh, which is it's, it's government funded, is it not? We are independent think tank, but okay. we also advise governments. If they read our reports, if they don't read our reports, then we, we don't automatically. The the it's up to you, just like you. Okay. If you read our you know, in reports and our policy or advisory, I mean, then then you know you you, you we we may be influencing in direct or indirect. But we are independent think tank. Do you see any attempts by the Moon government to uh, silence uh, critical voices at the moment? I don't. You know, let me put it this way. I think uh, people have voted for Moon Jae-in government because Moon Jae-in government is different. The kind of values that you just mentioned, the press of the freedom, is uh, and is very important for a democracy like South Korea. And actually, 
after a certain media instance that we probably, you know, you are alluding to without mentioning it, you know, the Chongwade Blue House made a very clear statement that, you know, that kind of thing should not be happened. So I think at the leadership level, they are aware of the importance and implementation and the, the sacredness of the press of the freedom. But when it comes to the, 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 uh, some official level or some party levels uh, that belong to the, the government, you know, they make some human mistakes. And I think uh, it should be a, a right and just to, for the Chongwade or Blue the leadership to step out and uh, criticize and point out this is not we, you know, subscribe to and that's wrong. And I think uh, it's, it's helpful as a democracy and uh, uh, the South Korean leadership uh, of Moon Jae-in governments that we will continue to implement these values and these are the values that we cannot compromise. And having said that, you know, just if I just make one just uh, backup statement in my previous statement about you know uh, South Korea's attitude uh, that South Korea should be very clear thinking about uh, about its own identity is because that when you are not clear about who you are and uh, what color is your country is about, uh, then you will be uh, you know always think about what other countries will think about how other countries will will deal with you. So that means that you will be in, in your policy and strategies will be always subject to other countries' uh, policies and the strategy. In that case, that you know this is a losing strategy. Mm-hmm. So that you will you know need to be very clear the areas of a compromise that you are willing to make. But then some very small values and things and, uh, you know, some things that are so sacred to Korean people because, you know, that's that's democracy. Because Korea used to be, you know, the military dictatorship. We overcome and they have a lot of bloodshed. So they achieved this kind of democracy. And there is no way of going back to, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. So, you know, we need to cherish, you know, our accomplishment, South Koreans. And I think these are the values that, you know, we shared our blows and now we achieved. And, and we should also make an effort to keep it in terms of our own domestic politics, but also in when it comes to our international affairs and dealing with the friends around the world. Uh, then where can people find you on the Internet? Are you a Twitterer? Do you have a blog? Do you uh, um, write things regularly that people can find? I think it's a, they could just, uh, you know, Sejong website and, uh, you know, type my, my name. Um, I think that will be easier. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. We'll put a link up uh, on the uh, the page when this uh, blog goes live, so that people can go and find your writings. You know, Jacko, you touched up on so many uh, good and uh, sensitive questions that you're not afraid to ask, and that's good, admirable. <laughs> and I think we touched only about uh, about uh, one tenth of the topics. You know, China U.S. relations and China North Korea relations, China South Korea relations, or inter Korean relations, so interesting and profound yeah. and entertaining, even. And, uh, you know, we should continue this conversation later on as yeah. well. Well, I, I hope to, uh, to have you back on the podcast again at a later date. If you give me a free subscription of NK News. Let's talk about that off the air. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Lee Sung-hyun. And thank you for coming all the way to the studio and uh, having the interview with us. Well, thank you for having me, Sako. Uh, thanks also to uh, producers Arias Dare and Christina Lee for helping to uh, bring out this wonderful podcast every week. Listeners, don't forget, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with everybody that you know. Catch you again next time. 